The scripture for today's teaching comes from Isaiah 64, 1 through 9, and 65, 17, and 18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the word of the Lord. All right. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and um, for those of you who didn't grow up in this tradition, uh, Advent just means that something is coming. Something's coming. So in Advent, we look back to the ancient people of God and say, oh, how did they look forward to something? Because they didn't know the end of the story. How, how did they look forward to something? So we look back and say, oh, how did they do that? How did they look forward to the Messiah? But then we also now, we are actually looking forward to a time when everything gets put to rights. Everything gets made right. So you learn things. How did they do it? And how do we do it now? Christmas, especially the time before Christmas, is a time of Advent. So our series um, right now for the next uh, f- uh, five times, so in, I'm including Christmas Eve there, is um, how, asking this question, how is Jesus joy to the world? How is Jesus joy to the world? Uh, now, now, there are some vivid, uh, I think, illustrations and words that the scriptures use to describe like how the human condition is in relation to um, a, a, a perfect God. So one, one of those illustrations that we see scripturally is um, deadness. 
right? Uh, 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 um, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the scripture tells us. So what it means by that is like we, don't, we are so broken and so flawed, we don't have this moral agency to fix ourselves. So the scriptures describe my condition as deadness in comparison to who God is. Um, there's another picture, and, and Will touched on this, and it's, it's one of captivity, like our condition has us in a certain prison cell that we couldn't use our own strength to get out of. And there are suspicions that were there rightfully. Uh, this, is, this is 79 years ago, a week to the day. Um, this was in 1943 in Tegel Prison, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German minister, was there underneath, uh, under the Third Reich, uh, and he was there because he was a minister who was protesting treatment of people, including the Jews, in Germany at that time. And here he was in prison, ultimately died. And he wrote this about Advent and about prisons. He wrote this, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. You're looking forward to something and you can't do anything to get out of it. Uh, prisons are a sort of result. <laughs> They're a result of like a legal system. They're a result of a culture, a society. They're a result of, of, of a governance. And, and all of the anger of the legal system, the society, the culture, all of their anger has rightfully put the person in that prison cell where they probably need to be. So, so prison is a result. Um, uh, when I was doing youth work, I was a young guy, forgive me of this, um, but uh, I, was, I was ministering in a small town in a youth group and um, I, I wanted to do this, I wanted to care for the widows and the orphans and those who are in prison, like the scriptures tell us to do. So I went to this small town jail, and the sheriff and his deputy were there, and you can only do this in a small town, by the way. And I said, hey, is it okay if I talk to anybody who's locked up? <laughs> and he was like, oh, why do you want to do that? I was like, well, because, you know, I'm bringing some youth guys with me, and we're commanded to, like, talk to the prisoners, visit the pri those in prison. And he was just like, yeah, that's fine. Now, again, this can only happen in a small town, but like the two dudes in the holding cells, they heard me. And they're like, yeah, if you come back, we want you to bring cool menthols with you. Okay, so, um, so I, I left with um, these two youth guys who were very impressionable at the time. And I went to the gas station, and I got some cool menthols. And uh, we went back to the jail because the guy had said, I'm not gonna talk to you unless you bring menthols. So, um, uh, we sat there, and it's funny, it's because the sheriff or the deputy guy, I mean, he let us just sit there and talk to him while he's smoking cigarettes. Again, this can only happen in a small town. And one of the guys goes, he goes, hey, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I did it. I am, I'm guilty. I, I, I so did it. And this guy had been repeatedly thrown in for four or five days for what can only be described, I'm going to keep this family friendly, but like public rowdiness and drunkenness. Um, I don't know why I'm grinning, but it just happened again. Um, but he was just, I think I'm grinning because he said, I, I'm, I did it, I did it. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place. I mean, yeah, he wants to be out, but part of him is just like, yeah, this is what happens. This is what happens.
Um, let, me, let me tell you something that doesn't sound very Christmassy at first, okay? <laughs> and this is going to bug you because it bugs me. God gets incredibly angry at sin. That doesn't sound very much like Christmas. Now, let me make an utter mess, because I've already ruined a little bit of Christmas. Let me make an utter mess of your Christmas dreams. Um, we are in a cell because of the sin we have done. And we also can't get out on our own strength. Let me try this. I, I, Christine, did you have those? Oh, oh here we go. This, you're, this is going to have to sound like jingle bells. Here, let me, let me try it again to make it more Christmassy. God gets incredibly angry at sin. Did that, did that make it better? No? Yeah, that bothers me. Now, let's, let's, let's be, really be honest with each other. Okay? Because God's approval ratings are absolutely dismal at this point. God gets incredibly angry at sin? Really, Tim? Yay, Christmas. Um, you would not believe the thumbs down he gets at this point. Like, like Kanye and that same uh, Sam Bankman fried guy have better approval ratings than God does at this point. God gets incredibly angry at sin. Like, um, I, I was talking to my son, and he said, you know, in history, they're, 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 they, they went through the Great Awakening, and of course, um, every, all of us had this, by the way. If you went to a public school in California, the West Coast, or whatever, um, you, just, you, you read about the Great Awakening, and you heard it was about the Puritans, and then they had an excerpt of one essay. Do you remember the essay? It, yeah, yeah. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. All right? And they didn't do the whole thing. They just had an excerpt of it. And everyone was, all the students were like, those Puritans were crazy because God is just so angry. And then someone raises their hand and they say, Miss Smith, Miss Smith, why were they like that? And Miss Smith, who probably just read that excerpt of Jonathan Edwards' essay, says, no, no guys, 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 look, look. Um, uh, back then, and back then means they're not enlightened. They're probably dragging their knuckles and they, ha they don't have a big view of the world. Um, and Miss Smith, poor Miss Smith says, look, they didn't know a lot, but now we believe in a really nice, happy, loving God. Back then they didn't because God was really angry, but now we believe in a really super, super nice, not angry God. Okay, what does this have to do with Christmas? Let me tell you. And this, it's, a it's a very massive controversial statement, but this is what I want, I'm going to ask you to do is please listen or hear me out before you leave mad. Like, don't be mad now, because you reserve to be mad until after it's done. I, all right, so here it is. Here's the controversial statement. Now, more than any time, we need an incredibly angry God who gets incredibly angry at sin. Okay, because that is what frees you and me from a cell. Now, I'm going to show you how, and this is the shape of where I want to go, is that if God is angry, then the future is not going to be a raging dystopia like a Cormac McCarthy book. Two, 
If we have an angry God, it's going to make you incredibly kind and not judgy. You're like, where is he getting this? Three, um, I'm going to show you if we have an angry God, it is a massive, big, big, liberating love out of that cell. All right, so look, the future is not going to be a raging dystopia. Let's look at that. When William um, read those words from Isaiah 64, there's just something that you have to remember, I have to remember, is that um, they're written like a a diary log of geopolitical situations. So, So the people who are reading Isaiah, the people of Israel, it is hard for suburbanites to get this in the West. Uh, let me just tell you this. Um, they have seen their homes leveled and burned, like standing right there. They have seen their kids killed right in front of their eyes. They're wishing for death, but they're about to be booted into exile where they are going to suffer a lifetime of degrading slavery to someone else. It is difficult for Western Americans to get this. Okay, so what are the words that Isaiah says in Isaiah 64? They're, they're seeing this injustice. What does he says? I'm going to paraphrase this, but this is what we get from Isaiah 64. You can see it in the text. Oh, that you would rip a hole in the cosmos and enter into this and do something about all of this garbage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. I wish you would come down here and do something about all of this violence. Do something. If you came down, this is what Isaiah is saying, if you came down, every strong man, every genocidal dictator, they would get pwned by you. Whoa. Whoa. All right, so what is Isaiah saying? If you did something, if you were angry at this injustice, the future would not be a dystopian lunacy. What's he saying? If, you, if I knew you were angry about all of this bad stuff happening, it would actually give me a little bit of hope. All right, here's a summary of Isaiah. And I'm going to throw in a lot more scripture. Here is like uh, God's anger is unchanging. This is why I'm not good at being angry. My kids can do something one day, and I ignore it, and it doesn't bother, bother me, and I'm not angry. And then the next day, out of the blue, they do the same thing, I get angry, and they're just like, well, what happened to you? So the scriptures talk about God who is angry, and he's angry at all the right things. And, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't, like, laugh if about some bad things, and sometimes we can laugh at bad things happening to other people as long as it doesn't happen to us, and, and we're not angry about it. But God is angry at all the right things. And he's always angry at bad things, even if we were just to be like, oh, it's not a big deal. Now, here, this is ominous. The scriptures tell us this, and maybe 
I'll sing Merry Christmas afterwards. This is what the scriptures tell us, tell us about an angry God. Nobody will get away with anything. Merry Christmas. Okay, now you're smart. You're enlightened. And I think you should push back here. And you're going to say, hey, hey um, big, tall dude. That's, that's hunter-gatherer talk around the campfire. That's knuckle-tragger talk. Okay? If you make God all angry, all it's going to do is increase violence in this world. So do not give me an angry God. You might say that to me, and you would be appropriate in actually bringing up that argument. Um, you guys, I've, I've quoted Miroslav Volf a lot in the last several weeks, and it's because <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Miroslav Volf lately, <laughs> all right? Um, and, and I do love the local connection. He used to teach at Fuller, and I told you he's at Yale Divinity now. And um, I, I recently read a book, um, uh, recently, like this last summer, and it's called Exclusion and Embrace. And Volf is from Yugoslavia, and he witnessed atrocities with his own eyes, and he witnessed the cries for justice from a lot of his countrymen who had endured atrocities. And he says this, I'm going to paraphrase this, because I, and I want you to grab this, the practice of nonviolence requires a deep belief in divine vengeance. Let me say that again. The practice for nonviolence for me requires that I believe in divine vengeance. Now, why is it that I need an angry God? Why is it? Nonviolence is only possible if you think that there is a God who will ultimately take care of it. And if you don't believe that there's a God who will ultimately take care of it, do you know what the job is? It is your job and it's my job to pick up our fist. It's to pick up a bat, it's to pick up a club, it's to pick up a gun, it's to, it, is, it is to do uh, written online takedowns at 2 a.m. It's on us to do it. If I don't believe that God is going to take care of it, then it's up to you and it's up to me to punch people who are bad. Uh, and so Wolf says this, no one will ever be a peacemaker unless we begin to believe in a God who is angry at sin. Whoa. I don't understand the Christmas part yet, Tim. Okay, all right, all right, all right. We're creeping in on a beautiful Advent Christmas via an angry God. Okay, we need his anger for hope that he's going to take care of business. He's going to make things right. But this is what else, second here. It's going to, believing in an angry God is going to make you incredibly kind and not judgy. Huh? Okay, when we read this part, um, uh, it's verses four to six. First, first of all, Isaiah's like this. He's like, I want you to rip a hole in the cosmos. I want you to come down. I want you to clean house. And then verses four to six, 
who do, we, who do we read is a little nervous and starting to shrivel up and shrink and get in a defensive, um, fetal, uh, defensive, uh, cowering position? This is odd because it's not the bad people who are beginning to cower and shake and tremble like a leaf. Because in verses four to six, the anger begins to touch the people who asked him to rip it open and come in. See, if when we meet the angry God of the scriptures, if he really did enter in and said, all right, I'm going after the bad people. It hits me. Because immediately, you know what I think? I think, oh, I've done some things. Yeah, I, I thought of them for sure, but I have done some things. This is it. Is all of a sudden, I am in this, <laughs> you have group A, with all the bad people, and we want to think that, hey, rip open heavens, come in and take care of group A for me. And suddenly it hits me, it's like, oh, oops, I am also in group A. I'm also in group A. Um, let, me, let me frame this in, uh, now this is really broad stroke. Okay, so forgive me for being broad stroke, but let, let me frame it in current divisions. You have um, religious, churchy, trad people. Trad, traditional conservative. I'll use trad, because that's what I read on Twitter. I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> so you have religious, churchy, trad people, and you have over, over there, and then you have progressive, rational, secular people over here. Now, the religious trad people um, say, we have rules, we have values, we have standards, we have morals, and we tell ourselves, look, God is going to judge naughty people. We believe it. We believe it. Now, and then they look at themselves, and this is what a religious, churchy, trad person, they look at themselves and say, and compared to the standards I believe in, I am doing pretty awesome. That's what a religious person says. Now, um, on the other side, you have progressive peeps, and they say this, look, you do you. I'm going to accept all of the things. I'm going to be so super cool and tolerant, okay? Um, and then they say this, all of those crazy trads are intolerant. Now, this is it. Very broad. Both of those groups believe something very, very seriously. If everybody was like me, we'd be fine and the world would be a better place. Uh, okay? What happens to Christians? I'm talking about Jesus followers. I'm not talking about religious people. I'm talking about Jesus followers. When they run into an angry God who is actually perfect. Verse six tells us, oh, all of my good stuff is like a polluted rag. 
the best things I do. Oh, oh. And why are the best things all messed up and screwed up? Because this is what the scriptures do. It blitzes by the facade of your externals and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But why did you do that? Why was I lenient? Why did you stay later at work? Well, for superiority and power. Why were you so generous? So I'd be seen as awesome and magnificent and noble. See, 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 it blitzes by the externals and goes to the heart. And so that's, that's when verse 6 says, oh my, Christians, Jesus say, oh, the best I do is garbage? And this is what happens is like, oh, I am the exact same as anybody in group A. You know, when we have an angry God who is angry at sin, I realize, oh, I am never, never above anyone else. I am equal with all. You can never be snooty. You can never be arrogant. You can never look down your nose. You can't. An angry God says, oh, guess what? My anger puts you in group A too. It'll make you kind and it will make you not judgy. Okay, um, an angry God means that we hope that he's gonna fix things. An angry God is gonna make you kind and not judgy because you realize, oh, you know what? My best is, is crud. But then it does this, and this is the third point. It shows you a big, big liberating love. And this is what I mean by that. Um, to the degree that you believe in an angry God is to the... To the degree that you'll actually believe that he loves you. That seems odd. But in verse 8, this is our clue. Isaiah calls him his father. And then he calls him a potter. So he's, he's viewing God as a dad and as an artist. I know you're a dad at heart, and I know you're an artist because you love your creation. And so, listen to this. Love is the reason for his anger. Tim, I'm not following. Okay, I, as you know, um, I don't have an original idea ever. I get this from C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, this is from Letters to, Letters to Malcolm. Um, and I'm not going to quote anything for you because I, I don't want to kill you. But um, uh, it's an idea that any marriage or relational therapist or counselor will affirm. And I'll affirm as a pastor of 20 plus years. Um, a couple comes into your office, if you're a therapist, counselor, whatever it is, and there are sparks and there's yelling and shouting and cussing and tears and back and forth. Um, just the whole burrito of emotions comes out if you're a marriage therapist or counselor or pastor. I will think in my head, and I know the therapist does, oh my goodness, there is so much hope for you guys. There is so much hope for you guys. But do you know what that? And why I say that, do you know what the death rattle is for a relationship? Death rattle is what they call in hospice when you start to hear the rattle in the throat. And it's ours, if. 
This is the death rattle of a relationship. The final trumpet of a dead relationship is blase, meh, indifference. I'll show you control, but I'm just over it. It's flat. There's no emotion. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, God's love is furious and his fury is loving. Why? Because a dad will get mad at his kids because he is dad, because they're his children, and because he loves them intensely. Um, it's also this. Think of it this way. Um, if you express anger, especially as dad and artist, it's a place where anger can go and actually be done with the matter. And again, I get this from C.S. Lewis. Um, God, and he says it this way, God's love is the satisfaction of his anger. Um, and, and this is what he means by that. Um, dads do something with their anger. And, they, um, and, and so he's writing a letter, and I will quote it briefly. He goes, um, and there's this, his friend Malcolm has these, this relational hostility and problem. It's a brokenness in relationship. And so he says, my dear Malcolm, is peace, peace is never restored through moral lecture. Kid, hey, that wasn't the right thing to do. Could you just do better next time? It's never fixed through moral lecture. The trad view, the religious view. And he says this, but it's also never ever fixed by saying, no problem, no matter, no big deal, which is the relativistic route. You do you, I do me, we'll just avoid it. It's never fixed by that. And this is C.S. Lewis's four-word phrase. He says this, hot wrath, comma, hot love. Do you know why you get mad and you get it out with your spouse? You're saying, I am expressing anger. Why? Because I want to be close to you. I want to be close to you. And this thing is ruining us. Hot wrath, hot love. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Now, this is incredibly, incredibly rare. I recognize this. Now, how rare is this? Is we only see it in Advent. How rare is it? I want to be so close to you, I am going to take on human flesh. I will be Emmanuel, God with you. We see it in one place. The judge of the, all the cosmos is being judged on the cross. This is where we see God can both be fury and love. If we have a God who is just angry at sin and injustice, guess what? We all get scorched. But if we have a God who's all love and no fury, nothing will ever, ever be corrected, ever. Because he's a God of love, only. And at the cross, we see things that simultaneously. I am gonna pour out 
every ounce of wrath I have against you against my own son, and it will satisfy me because you're loved. See, that's how you know you're loved. That's how big. How, what did it cost your God to love you? And we point to one dead God. It cost one dead God for me to be blameless in his sight, where he is not angry at me anymore. How is Jesus joy to the world? Well, an angry God is not going to give us a, f- a future of you know, raging dystopia. Um, An angry God is going to make you incredibly kind and not judgy. And if you don't believe in an angry God, you might never, ever really know the huge cost it took, the price being one dead God. How is Jesus joy to the world? He satisfies the anger of God. And that is the only thing that's going to liberate you. The only thing that's going to liberate you. Let's pray into that. Jesus, um, uh, your kindness, uh, I have always talked about your kindness and your love and your mercy and your grace. But admittedly, I have shied away from your anger. Talking about it, speaking about it, examining it, turning it over, mulling it over. That's my bad. I'm glad you're angry. And I'm so glad you're not angry at me because of Jesus alone. Amen.